thank you once again for taking the time out to listen to these episodes. First of all, a public service announcement. I'm going to be talking a lot about foreign policy and geopolitics. If you'd like to learn more, go back to episode 58. Lots of backgroundy stuff there. This episode, I want to talk about Pakistan. It's geopolitical nightmare, and it is a nightmare. Think about it. On the right is India. On its head is Afghanistan. To its left is Iran. And somewhere out there over the rainbow is China. While the Americans keep a stern eye on the Pakistan operation. My objective in this episode is to keep it really, really honest and give an understanding to you, dear listeners, about what the geopolitical quagmire for Pakistan is. First, though, what is Pakistan? Well, it is a country in South Asia. It is the world's fifth most populous country, with a population of about 227 million people, and has the world's second largest Muslim population, the largest being Indonesia. It has 1,000-kilometer coastline along, even, the Arabian Sea and the Gulf of Oman. And it is bordered by India to the east, Afghanistan to the west, Iran to the southwest, and China to the northeast. It is separated narrowly from Tajikistan by Afghanistan's Wakhan Corridor in the north. And it also shares a maritime border with Oman. The crux here is that it has border disputes with not one, but two of its neighbors, India as well as Afghanistan. Pakistan is also the site of several ancient cultures, including the 8,500-year-old Neolithic sites of Murang and in Balochistan, as well as the Indus Valley Civilization. All truly awesome, awe-inspiring stuff. The area of modern Pakistan used to be the realm of multiple empires and dynasties, such as Persian, Macedonian, the Mauryans, the Guptas, the Kushans, the Umanid Caliph, and in southern regions, the Hindu Shahi, the Ghaznis, the Mughals, and the Sikhs, including, of course, later the British East India Company and then the British themselves. Indeed, the history of Pakistan is extremely closely mirrored to the history of northwestern India. And by the way, I've done an entire three-part series on India's borders, where I talk about, by default, Pakistan borders, because they, well, they border India. So go check it out. In short, driven by the Pakistan movement in British India, which sought a homeland for the Muslims of British India by the All India Muslim League, led by a Muhammad Ali Jinnah, i.e. Pakistan's founding father. So, driven by that, the British, on leaving the subcontinent, decided to split it into two, into Muslim majority and, well, everyone else. Everyone else, or the others, was India, and the Muslim majority sections was Pakistan. It was not so clean-cut as that, though, so go back to my older episodes if you want to learn more, but that was the rough gist. On the 14th of August, 1947, Pakistan became independent from the British Empire. Then, there was the trauma, the absolute trauma on all sides of partition migrations, including partition deaths. 
Ultimately, there were not one, two Pakistans, East Pakistan and West Pakistan. West Pakistan is modern, i.e. 2022 version of Pakistan. What was East Pakistan is now the country of Bangladesh. More on that later. Initially, Pakistan was a dominion of the British Commonwealth. It officially drafted its constitution only in 1956 and emerged as a declared Islamic Republic. Pakistan means land of the pure. Interestingly, the name of the country was coined in 1933 by Chaudhry Rahmat Ali, a Pakistan movement activist. Pakistan was, at the time, the only country to have been created in the name of Islam. Call it a first. The idea of Pakistan had received some popular support among some Indian Muslims, especially those in provinces where Muslims were a minority, such as the United Provinces of British India. This was articulated in terms of an Islamic state by the Muslim League leadership. The oddities about Jinnah's Islamic ambitions and his own personal life, given he married a Parsi woman as his second wife, by the way, his first wife tragically passed away, and their daughter, Dina Wadia, also married a Parsi man, while he was also somebody who drank alcohol. It's just weird. Anyway, for Jinnah to aspire to Islamic leadership while being not so Islamic personally is the crux of the dilemma I want to talk about. You see, we should discuss what being the self-proclaimed first Islamic state was. Oh, the pressure. Kawaja Nazimuddin, the second prime minister of Pakistan, said, and I'm quoting, I do not agree that religion is a private affair of the individual, nor do I agree that in an Islamic state every citizen has identical rights, no matter what his caste, creed, or faith may be. End quote. To Pakistan's credit, I do want to state that in the constitution of the state, freedom of religion is guaranteed. However, this is a big huge however. Pakistan currently retains very sketchy blasphemy laws that get non-Muslims and even some Muslims into prison or worse for actual or supposed comments against Islam. In addition, a later president, a.k.a. dictator, Zia-ul-Haq, with what is known as the Hadood Ordinance, began the gradual process of steady Islamification and Shariification of the country. This activity will ultimately have lasting consequences for Pakistan and the bright, broader world for decades to come. So we're in murky waters already. Pakistan was created as an Islamic Republic. So to keep up with the concept, they started coming up with radical ideas. Keep in mind that the religion of Islam has no specific history related to creating an Islamic state of any kind, and certainly not a Muslim-only state. This was not like Latin Christianity. Remember, states are a European, Westphalian, mostly post-French Revolution concept. So this idea of blending the religion, keep in mind religions are imagined, to a country countries are also imagined, to a nation, by default, nations are imagined, tribes, yes, tribes are also imagined. So this idea of blending the religion to a country and to a nation was, shall we say, unique. 
all the rhetoric did was create a natural illusion, the illusion of a state for Islam, but disguised as a homeland for the Muslims of what was British India in 1947. The idea of Islam, of Muslims, of leadership in the Muslim world, mixed with the trauma of partition, was only compounded tenfold by the fact that the people they, yes, they, meaning the Mughals, the Muslim rulers pre-British rule, well, they, these Muslim rulers, had ruled over the Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Christian Jains, Parsis, etc. And in the end, in 1947, they, the inheritors, were left with pieces, and the heretics were the ones who got more land, while Pakistan, for them, sadly, was split into two, one on each side of India, East and West Pakistan. This is super-duper important, listeners. These concepts play into the heart, soul, and mind of Pakistan, its foundation, and its current situation. It's all linked like a bear to honey. Without this extremely important context, it is impossible to understand the mindset of the Pakistani nation. Just as a reminder, injustice at partition, injustice after partition, denial of more lands from the British India, split into two, Islam, Islamification, that whole thing. These pain points led Pakistan to its single biggest foreign policy objective, the confrontation with India. Before I look at the meaty foreign policy issues, I do want to spend some more time explaining the internal workings of the Pakistani mindset. Partition was based on the two-nation theory. Go back, way back to episode 12 for more on that. Anyway, in short, it was the idea that the Muslims of British India needed their own homeland and that it wasn't possible for the two groups to live in tranquility in the same nation. That led to the trauma, the largest human mass migration in history, at least at the time or ever, the trauma of partitioning the subcontinent into Muslim Pakistan and secular India. That was then amplified by President Zia, who went further draconian when it came to religion. Zia can be credited, if you can call it that, as the person who turned Pakistan into a global center of political Islam. Zia ruled from 1977 to 1988. What is interesting is that before 1956, Pakistan did not technically even have an official state religion. Zia established separate Sharia courts, new criminal offenses, including the dreaded blasphemy rules, including concerning punishments such as whipping, stoning, and amputations. School textbooks were removed of books deemed un-Islamic. Conservative scholars were regularly celebrities on television. Tens of thousands of far-right religious party members were appointed to government positions to ensure continuity after his sudden demise in 1988. There was opposition to his reforms and that fractured Pakistani society know it. And to be clear, the Zia tenure was after Pakistan lost East Pakistan. More on that in a bit. But the fracture was not just an alienation of the religious minorities, but of the Shia Muslims in particular as well. Zia also went on to the trouble of declaring the Muslim sect Ahmadis as infidels. 
The sorry state of forced conversions or conversions under cultural duress, especially of young girls, remained and remains a societal norm. In elections, elections, Zia ordained that seats in assembly would be reserved for minorities and that they would have a separate electoral system where they could only vote for candidates of, theoretically, their own faith, meaning Muslim politicians would no longer have any care whatsoever for what a minority would think because they're not being elected by one, ever. Minor tweaks to the Islamification of Pakistan happened only after 9-11 as a token gesture by then-president, a.k.a. dictator, Pervez Musharraf. The blasphemy rules are still present as of March 2022. Another important point to understand here is that 1971 was a pivotal moment for Pakistan. In that year, Pakistan lost Bangladesh in a combined war of independence in East Pakistan, and it also lost a big, huge war against India in the same year, related battles. Once East Pakistan was lost, go to my episode 13 for more, once East Pakistan was lost and became Bangladesh, as it is today, Pakistan also lost a population that was the most secular. West Pakistan, that retains its statehood today as Pakistan, was more religious than it is now. So now you have some background. And I want to look at who runs foreign policy and international relations in Pakistan for Pakistan. There are five major centers of power in Pakistan. Number one is the army. Number two is the ISI or Inter-Services Intelligence Agency. That's Pakistan's security state. Number three, the politicians. Number four, the Sunni establishment. Number five, the zamindars or rich landowners. There are links between them all, but the power of the army is paramount followed by the security state, then politicians, then the Sunni establishment, and then the Zamindars, who in turn also make up a lot of the politicians. Key to understanding how powerful the army is, you'll be happy to note that Ayub Khan, Zia, and Musharraf have all been military chiefs who took over from the admittedly equally incompetent and in some instances corrupt democratically elected leaders. Pakistan has had the absolute misfortune of being riddled with inept political masters across the board, be they democratic or otherwise. I'm not someone who gives two hoots about democracy personally. I don't care about democracy, freedom, authoritarianism, theocracy, monarchy, or indeed whatever takes your fancy. History has everything. Everything can be made to work. But to go from bad to bad to bad is a travesty to the people who must put up with the nonsense year in and year out. And on the other side, Pakistan has inherited rich ancient human history. Harappa, the civilization that existed at the same time as the ancient Egyptians, Sumer, Akkad, has the ruins or much of the ruins in Pakistan. Beyond the history is cultural Culture is a big part of Pakistan, Balochistan, Punjab, Sindh, Khyber, Gilgit, Balistan, Islamabad, and what is technically known in Pakistan and nowhere else is the province of Azad Kashmir. I'll get to Kashmir in a moment. Karachi is in Sindh, 
It is the largest city, well, of course, Islamabad is the capital. The largest ethnic groups or group are the Punjabis, followed by the Pashtos and then the Sindhis. Now, taking it back from that, I will now look at the relationships between Pakistan and its main neighbors, keeping in mind that all of this, what I've described, is in the background and that Pakistan has all these different type of cultures and it's steeped in some kind of ancient history as well. But the focus for Pakistanis, the focus is always north. It's north to Kashmir. Now, before I dive into Kashmir any further, we've got to talk about India, of which the conversation about Kashmir will happen, and Bangladesh. And then we'll talk about Afghanistan, Iran, China, the broader Muslim world a little bit, and the broader world at large a little bit, but mostly these neighbors. Okay, starting with India. And this is the biggie, the big one. You really must go back to episode 11 to 13 to really understand the nitty-gritty of the India-Pakistan partition and history between these two countries. I always say hate is a strong word. Well, in geopolitics, hate comes with costs. Costs to both sides, at least in this case. India and Pakistan fought a somewhat stalemate war over Kashmir in the 1940s. Another war in the 1960s, and then one in 1971. They fought another war resulting in humiliating defeat for Pakistan, resulting in it, its decapitation by the formation of Bangladesh out of what was East Pakistan. This move was a masterstroke for Indian military strategists. In one go, the Pakistani state could no longer inflict a cost on Eastern India in a military or otherwise format. So Pakistan could no longer hit India on two fronts. Interestingly, it was only once when Bangladesh happened or was created that Zia came in and force-fed religion into the national politics. So that loss was a big deal. After the loss of Bangladesh, Pakistan signed the 1972 Shimla Accord with India, officially acknowledging Bangladesh's de facto independence, amongst other things. So yes, Bangladesh's independence from Pakistan is crucial to understanding what happens to Pakistan in the years right after that, i.e. 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. You see, Pakistan then wanted and needed to avenge that loss. The plan was to refocus attention to Kashmir while adopting an overt policy known as death by a thousand cuts. In other words, attack India using unofficial sketchy means under the guise of religious self-determination. The Indians call this terrorism, or they call it state-sponsored terrorism, pick or choose. This death by a thousand cuts policy resulted in the creation of a ragtag of religious groups who were whipped up to fight the neighboring infidel. What seems to most world observers at the time as a local activity would ultimately turn out to become the biggest 
pain in the backside for countries as far away as the US, UK, Russia, East Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and so on. Because Pakistan proactively supported these jihadi groups backed ultimately by US funding. Now, Kashmir is complex. A big chunk of it, about 40% of the 1947 princely state, is run by India. Another 40-odd percent, this one in the western part of the 1947 principality, is run by Pakistan. While the rest was taken militarily by China from India, or willingly given up by Pakistan to China as probably a goodwill gesture. That's four administrative disputes. Bits taken by force from India by China, bits given up by Pakistan to China, the bits on the west run by Pakistan, and the bits on the east run by India. Got it? Good. If you ever look at a map, say by the BBC, you will see dotted lines running through much of the region because it is that disputed. Those dotted lines, in some cases, have official names. The one between the Indians and the Pakistanis is called the LOC, or Line of Control, demarking the ceasefire line from the first war between these two countries in Kashmir soon after independence in 1947. The term LOC came about as part of the 1972 Shumna Accord. There is a line of actual control. Yes, the line of actual control, not the line of control, the line of actual control. This is the disputed line between China and India. One line, this with no official name, separates the bits Pakistan gave up to China. And finally, there is that strip of land that Pakistan calls Azad Kashmir. So that has its own unnamed dotted line between the bits Pakistan doesn't have a dotted line for and does have a dotted line for. It's very complex on the Pakistan side. India calls the entire Pakistan side of the LOC, they call it POK or Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Pakistan, in turn, calls the Indian side IOC. Now, guess what that means? The 20% run by China, that's a lost cause. No one is ever getting that back. It's done deal. The India side has two to three distinct areas. One is the Srinagar Valley, centered around the city of Srinagar, mostly Muslim. Number two is Jammu, mostly Hindu and Sikh. And the third region is the Ladakh region that is mostly Buddhist. The Pakistan side has two distinct regions. One is Gilgit Baltistan, and the other is what Pakistanis call Azad Kashmir, or to translate into English, Free Kashmir, what they would consider ultimately just free from India. And it has a technically free government, but is entirely within the Pakistan state apparatus. Just to be safe, though, Azad Kashmir is just a small strip of land around the Mirpur area. So it even denies the Azadi or freedom to most of the Pakistani-held Kashmir that lies within Pakistan. That aside, what Pakistan wants from India 
is mostly the Srinagar Valley because it is Muslim majority. Once it mostly because, you may have guessed it, it's Muslim majority. Thus, can be, and technically according to them, should be part of the two-nation theory. India, on the other hand, says no, because it is a secular country. And also, no, well, why should we? Pakistan also wants the Buddhist Ladakh and Hindu Sikh Jammu areas too. But getting the locals there signed up to Sunni radical thoughts has proven tough on these religious groups. It has not, however, proven tough for the Srinagar Valley, where death by a thousand cuts has been in operation for about 30 years with varying degrees of success from the Pakistani perspective. One big success has been the jihadi infiltration in the region to target the minority Hindu population. Most Hindus from the valley have left the valley. The other target was the Indian military. And that was easy because the military were and are everywhere. So attacking them was somewhat easier. But it's gotten harder later. It was easy for Pakistan to rile support because India was often heavy-handed with locals and because what was then the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir was often in election mode amongst other activities of corruption, etc., that ultimately hampered its very own security. In 1999, Pakistani irregulars infiltrated the peaks of Kargil district in Indian Kashmir. The Indian army had to retake those peaks in daring climbs. The peaks were retaken, but the war was a defining moment and a massive wake-up call for the Indian security state. In July 2001, Indian Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee invited Pervez Musharraf to Agra for a summit. Not much happened. Soon after that, Pakistan-inspired groups or terrorists, depending on how you see it, attacked the Indian parliament in New Delhi. And in 2008, on the 26th of November, terrorists from Pakistan sailed into Mumbai, armed to the teeth, shooting randomly in the streets, including at the train station, hospitals and cinemas. These terrorists ended up holding people hostage in the Taj and Oberoi hotels in the city. Many of the criminals or terrorists, depending on how you see it, who are wanted for this attack and other attacks are reasonably free-roaming in Pakistan. Even now, in March 2022, they are free-roaming. By these standards, and from Pakistan's perspective, it seems like a success story. Except it isn't. These kind of activities only makes Pakistan, Pakistanis, and those of Pakistani descent abroad look like evil, mass-murdering terrorists. Events like this shun Pakistan from polite society, and as a result, its economy flounders. Because of the Mumbai attacks in particular, but even the Kargil war and the political entity of Pakistan, it isn't seen as anything positive, it's just seen in a negative light. This is a self-inflicted own goal and will take generations to resolve. 
Afghanistan is the other big neighbor. Unlike India, where there is a hate-hate relationship, with Afghanistan, it's a love-hate relationship. Almost a love-hate-love-hate relationship. Ever hear about the Durand Line? Well, this Durand Line forms the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. Yes, all of it. The full border. 2,670 kilometers, that's 1,660 miles. That's an international border. That's long. The western end runs to the border with Iran, and the eastern end runs to the border with China. The Durand Line was established in 1893 as the international border between British India and the Emirate of Afghanistan by A. Mortimer Durand, a British diplomat of the Indian Civil Service, and Abdur Rahman Khan, the Afghan Emir, to fix the limit of their respective spheres of influence and to improve diplomatic relations and trade. The British considered Afghanistan to be an independent state at the time, although they controlled its foreign affairs and diplomatic relations. The Durand Line cuts through the Pashtun tribal areas and further south through the Balochistan region, politically dividing ethnic Pashtuns as well as the Baloch and other ethnic groups who live on both sides of the border. From a geopolitical and geostrategic perspective, and I'll put it quite simply, it could be described as one of the most dangerous borders in the world. Well, why? Because although the Durand Line is internationally recognized as the western border of Pakistan, it remains largely unrecognized by Afghanistan. In 2017, amid cross-border tensions, former Afghan President Ahmed Karzai said that Afghanistan will never recognize the Durand Line as the border between the two countries. While Pakistan was trying to bleed India by a thousand cuts on its eastern border, the western border looked dicey too. Things got even worse when in 1979, the Soviet army rolled into Afghanistan. The Soviets typically allied with the Indians. So, just to be sure, the Pakistani dictatorship went cozy with the Americans. Pakistan then became a flush with arms, training camps, and anything the Americans could throw at the USSR, it landed in Pakistan first. The strategy had the added benefit of subduing the Afghans and helped in erasing their nasty border dispute. As the Soviet presence in Afghanistan ended, the Americans saw little reason to be bothered by this wayward region and left Pakistan and Afghanistan to sort out their own differences. The Taliban were young boys, often orphaned during the Soviet occupation. They had fled to Pakistan and were refugees there. Their education was religious and radical in religious schools known as madrasas. This was all happening in Pakistan. The Pakistani state actively trained and supported their governance of Afghanistan, i.e. the governance of the Taliban in Afghanistan. The Taliban ruled Afghanistan, indebted to Pakistan for its reign from the early 1990s to the American invasion and occupation in 2001. As the American occupation ended in 2021, the same Taliban, though with looser ties to Pakistan this time, ended up back in charge of much of Afghanistan. Another important border is the one with Iran. Less stressful than the India and Afghanistan borders, but dicey in that Iran is a Shia majority state, while Pakistan is a Sunni majority state. Both have their fair share of fundamentalists. Indeed, 
relations between Shia-majority Iran and Sunni-majority Pakistan became greatly strained due to sectarian tensions in the 1980s as Pakistanis, with Shia Muslim Pakistanis even, claimed that they were being discriminated against under the Sunni-biased Islamization program. Then up over the rainbow is China. The People's Republic is China's best friend. China supports and funds many infrastructure projects in Pakistan. Pakistan in, is really financially indebted to China and is part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. China needs to and does run a trade route from ports in the Arabian Sea through Pakistan into China proper, thus bypassing the Indian Ocean, the Malacca Straits, and any piracy. It's actually a brilliant strategy for China because the relationship allows China to indirectly also check India. Pakistan has no land border with Tajikistan or any Arab country, but some of the richer Gulf Arabs have had much influence inside Pakistan. Indeed, Pakistan has a huge working population living abroad in cities such as Dubai. Pakistan's relations with the USSR, now Russia, has been testy, mainly because of the closeness of the India-Russia relationship, but also because of the 1979-1989 Soviet occupation of Afghanistan and Pakistan's anti-Russian stance during that occupation, and its pro-US stance as well. The USA, on the other hand, has been the absolute best friend of Pakistan until 9-11. After 9-11, the USA and Pakistan allied, but it was one of convenience. The US needed Pakistan to beat the Taliban. Yes, Pakistan was forced to go rogue on their own creation. Overtly, Pakistan obliged, but covertly, the Pakistanis used the deaths of a thousand cuts to also lead the Americans in Afghanistan. In short, and to conclude, Pakistan has an image problem, and it is all, all, 100% of its own making. Think about it for a second. Osama bin Laden was found hiding in Pakistan, right in the town where their army officers are trained. Pakistan created the Taliban, who were running the most brutal of theological regimes in the 1990s. They are associated, i.e. Pakistan is associated with the Mumbai attacks, the attacks on India's parliament, and countless hits on Indian military in Kashmir. Trade relations, tourism, infrastructure, the economy, and civil society has no real policy in Pakistan. This is a massive disservice to the Pakistanis who are extremely poor. But no one wants to be too closely aligned to Pakistan, not even the Arabs, thus allowing China a free hand in global affairs to be Pakistan's number one best friend forever. Pakistan needs to fundamentally change its internal outlook, shut the theological schools, come to a mutual settlement with the Indians, including in Kashmir, shut the training camps, settle the Durand line, quit Afghanistan, and finally refocus on trade. Pakistan's leaders may have ambition to have the world's only Islamic nuclear bomb, and they do have it, by the way, but all of this is a distraction 
for inept domestic politics and horrible economic policies. Pakistan is a middle-ranking power, and it is now just a pawn in a great game between India and China. At this point, Pakistan is an independent vassal state of China, just as the Taliban were to Pakistan. And all of this is the sad and unfortunate fault of Pakistan's ruling classes. At the expense of most of the people, the obsession against India and the self-deluded competition is causing its leaders to be too blind to see the obvious benefits of cross-border trade. But it is Pakistan who has to make that first move, no one else. One final passing thought is that Pakistan still can fix its foreign policy and international relations dilemma. It is possible, but it requires incredible political will and courage domestically, not just domestic and economic policies, but policies in its foreign policy space. It needs to happen inside first before it can fix its outside. Pakistanis often point to the BJP across the border in India as being some kind of radical group or political party, but the reality is they are hoodles compared to Pakistan's tax or influence against its own minorities over the decades. They are poodles. Pakistan really needs to fix its own house. And it also needs to solve its dangerous foreign policies with regard to India and Afghanistan. It needs to behave like a regional mid-ranking power because that is what it is. And today it is almost entirely beholden to China. That may not be a bad thing, but being beholden to just one country is a negative. It doesn't work. You need to have better friends. Okay, that's my rant over. Thank you so very much for listening. I hope this was helpful. And if you liked it, please go and rate the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you so very much once again. 